For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine? Or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. All things. How incredible is it that in all things God has, he is, and he will be with those he has called in all circumstances. That we can trust and know that in Christ is our hope, our promise, our provision. He is the providence in each of our lives, saved and unsaved. For the unsaved, the promise of hope, restoration, and reconciliation to God. And that's not of ourselves. For the saved, he's the promise of everlasting love, culminating in his glorious return when we shall all be made new. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness. In either case, it's all about his providence. It is his planning, his working from eternity past, which gives us the ability to confidently say, as Paul does, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer, no one and nothing. It is by his governing power that we can rest assured that whether through trials and suffering or opportunity and elation, all things work together for good. With that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and thankful for your providence in our lives. In the midst of trials, sufferings, in the midst of joys, excitement, new beginnings, God, you are at work. You've planned these things and are in all of these things. It's by your providence that they come to pass and that we can continually look toward hope in you. And we ask, Lord, that your providence would guide Alex today, that he would share the words that you have prepared for him to share. And that we would receive it with open hearts, open ears, and ready hands and feet willing to go forth and do what you've called each of us to do. To love you, to love others as ourselves. We thank you and give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Josh. What an incredible passage that we just saw there. Romans chapter 8. You know, people call it. Uh, the greatest chapter in the Bible for a reason. And it's 
because of some of the things we encountered just moments ago. When me and Jesse got married, um, right before we were getting married, so we got engaged in June or July of the year before. We were engaged for about 11 months. That was miserable. Um, and <clears throat> I was working a job. I was in youth ministry, like part-time, and then I worked a job in outside sales. And we were preparing for what is hopefully one of the greatest times of our lives. We just got married. You know, we're getting married. And one of the biggest decisions you make, right, in, in your life. And uh, I, we went under contract in a house in the Jefferson area. And um, I was working a job in commerce. And it was outside sales, so I traveled a ton. And uh, we were going to close on the house in the end of April. And then uh, we were getting married uh, May, May 26th is, is our, our, our wedding anniversary. And a week before we were going to close on the house, I lost my job. I remember feeling so disoriented. Like, and ultimately, as you know, I, I, it led to me losing the house. We lost, we lost our house. You know, there's a, there's, I remember thinking at the time, this is what felt so disorienting for me. I felt like I could, I, could, uh, I could build my life off of, off of the job, off of the house, and off of the marriage. I could build my life off of that. You know, and that was the plan. I was going to, we had, this is a great home that we had planned here. And now everything was up in the air. We ended up, when we got married, we had to live in my, uh, with my grandmother in her upstairs bedroom. So we came off of our honeymoon and went straight to my grandmother's house in the upstairs. And our bedroom was right above her bedroom. Loss of financial security disoriented me in so many ways. It was just, it was devastating. I remember also this time when I was in high school. And uh, me and Jesse went on this cruise um, for like a senior trip. And when we got off the cruise, my mom called me because it was the first time she could get in touch with me. And she told me that one of my best friends had been killed in a car accident. And, yeah, devastated. Devastation. You know, when you go through situations like these, you just feel powerless in so many ways. Have you ever faced something in your life that, you know, just made you feel like you lost all sense of security and confidence? We, we like to know that we hold our, our future in our hands. If anything, America promises us that. America promises us that we're going to pave the way for our future. But when something like these kind of events, that life-altering changes everything about the direction that you're going in your life, when these type of events happen, they're sudden, they're devastating, they're crushing. It leads us to just be so devastated because it turns out that we never held our future in our hands. It, all, it was always contingent upon other things. Always. You're, I mean, our lives are always that way. Give me one example of a man who made his way and, answer, and did everything he wanted to do. Did everything that he thought was in his heart and ended up living to tell about it. Because at the end of the day, if nothing in our life robs us, of the things that we want. At the end of the day, death does. 
And the things that we build our lives upon, what we find out in times of tragedy, are temporary and fragile. It is, it is in these moments that I think that it's revealed who we believe God is. It's, it's revealed here. The first one is this, that you trust God's providence above everything. Okay, that's the first thing. And even though there, there's questions that you have that you will always have that will not be answered in your life, more than likely. There's a lot of questions that aren't going to be answered. There's questions about God that you're not going to get the answer to right now. And I, I've said this before. When it comes to God and, and the mystery that surrounds him in general, I even believe in eternity you're not going to have the answer to them, but you're going to see with more clarity and confidence who he is. And it's going to make the questions fade away. So we can trust God in these moments, trust his providence. It leads us in a way to lean on him. But something else that's oftentimes revealed in my own life is that I feel the way I do when I'm devastated or I'm going through suffering or uh, all of a sudden a, a change of direction because I don't lean on him, because I don't trust him, which reveals a misunderstanding of who I thought that he was. We don't understand God's involvement in and over everything that's going on in the world. So when we face times of fragility, volatility, we realize that we didn't, we don't have a solid framework for how we, to live our life. But the third thing that is revealed in response to suffering or tragedy is we don't lean on him because of our pride. We're disoriented because we struggle to comprehend in a world of suffering the providence of God. We struggle to understand that. We struggle to understand how God can be involved in our lives on this level in light of all the things that we go through. That's a hard reality to wrestle down. So I want to look today at what does it mean that God is providential. I want to look at the providence of God. What is the providence of God? Well, this is, what I would, this is how I would define it on a very high level. The providence of God is God's acting in the world to purposefully provide for, sustain, and govern the entire world. On a very high level, what it means when we say that God is providential, that the scriptures would show us that there's a, there's, a, there's a providence of God, is that God is acting in the world. He's, he's turning everything in the world in accordance purposefully to provide for, to sustain, and to govern the entire world according to his purposes. What I mean is that on a large scale that God is governing everything in the world for his ultimate purposes. And don't get that confused with sovereignty. God is sovereign, yes. And what that is saying is that there is no more powerful and authoritative being in all of creation. God stands alone. There's no one like him. Nothing can come against him that can thwart his plans and his purposes but providence is different. That's not what providence is. Providence is that his power and his, and his uh, supreme authority are working all things for his ultimate purposes. It's not just that he's powerful. It's that he is zealous for his purposes in the world and he will see everything working towards it. That's what it means that he is providential. And this is how deep his providence goes in your life. He's behind the sun rays that hit your face on a sunny day. 
Man, yesterday was a great day. Now, I, I feel like I, we took two walks, and I went for a run, and we stayed outside all day long, it felt like. He's behind the sun rays that hit your face, and that's working for his ultimate purposes in creation. Or how about this? He is behind the limit at which the ocean's tides spread across the beach. That's providence. He is in and among and governing the spiritual realities that are underneath everything that we see in the world. He's in all of it. And he is present and working in a mysterious way that we can't understand in moments of devastation and suffering in our life. Moments of sadness. He is purposefully orchestrating everything for his purposes. In the book of Job, Satan asks God if he can afflict Job with unspeakable tragedy. And he had to ask God because nothing was outside of God's jurisdiction. In each chapter of the Psalms, the psalmists have one eye on God and they have one eye in the world on the horrible things that they're facing because the psalmists know that God holds the whole world in His hands. And in Romans, Paul says that it is from Christ and to Christ and through Christ that everything finds its existence. Think about what Paul was saying here. He's saying that there is nothing in all the world that doesn't find its reference point. Reference point in the murdered, resurrected Son of God, Jesus. There's nothing that doesn't find its reference point in Christ. Everything. Everything. The providence of God permeates the Bible. And it permeates this world. He's working everything in the world for His ultimate purposes. He sustains everything for His purposes. When the Scripture says in Romans, all things, this is what it means. All things. That's what it means. Everything. But the Bible doesn't just define it broadly. But for the Christian, you who are here and you're, you're a Christian, you, you love God. The Bible has a particular definition of providence that, that, that functions in our theology it, that, that we should take heart in. That enables us to believe and act in a particular way in our life. And it's this. God is working all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You can't define it any better than that. That's what it means that God is providential in your life as a Christian. That God is working all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. When Paul writes this in Romans, he doesn't have in mind this group of theologians who are debating the ins and outs of systematic theology. Paul has in mind the weak Christian who's trying to make it to the end and still be treasuring Jesus. That's what he wants you to see in the providence of God. Individuals like you and me who can't seem to grasp why our lives are turning out the way that they are, for good or worse. Christians like you and me who honestly are scared and anxious about tomorrow. There's people right now in, our, in this room who they don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But there's questions that they have to have answered. And it's causing anxiety. So the, the scripture says here, if this is a good definition of providence, which I think it is. If you have questions about that, we can talk about it afterwards. What it says here, though, is that God is working all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So what is his purpose then? What, what is his purpose in all things? 
If everything in the world's working towards it, I think that's a very valid question. And I think the answer, honestly, somewhat, is in verses 29 and 30 here. It starts with this conjunction. Another way you could translate it is because. For, verse 29, those whom he foreknew. He's working all things according to his purpose because those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be called the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a summation of what he's saying here. God is working all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, which is this. This is his purpose. The glory of God revealed in the salvation of sinners accomplished through the work of Christ. God's purpose for all of creation is that he would be ultimately revealed and treasured and savored in all things, everywhere, at every place, in eternity, because of what is revealed in the salvation of sinners. That we see on display in the person and work of Christ. That is his purpose in all of creation. That is what everything is trending towards. Your life and your everyday existence does not exist outside of that goal. Whether you're a Christian or you're not. Your life exists underneath and in the, the flow of all of creation. In the river and stream bed which is everything trending towards the ultimate culmination of God's glory and the person and work of Christ that is seen and felt most clearly through the salvation of sinners like you and me. I want you to think about some of the things it says here in verse 29. He says, what is his purpose? Well, God foreknew you. God predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. As a Christian... You can read yourself into this passage. You can. He's writing to you, Christian, if you believe the gospel, that you have been from creation set apart before anything existed to be found in Christ and conformed to his image in some mysterious way in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, what it's saying is that, that Jesus would be central. Jesus would be the, the, the most Important. Jesus would be the firstborn among us. And those whom he predestined, he also called. He called out of darkness into marvelous light. And those whom he called out in that way, he justified. So we talked about justified in our 7 to 12 class just a few moments ago. What that means is that God looks at you as if you had not sinned. He looks at you as if you have every right to be in his presence now. He justified you. And the scripture says here, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, love how it's past tense. That it's, already, that it's already happened. Why? Because in Christ, the full work of salvation has been demonstrated and accomplished. In Christ. And when he rose from the grave, there's nothing else that's needed. It's a living, forever standing at the right hand of God's sacrifice that will be smelt and felt and seen for all eternity. And because of that work, we are glorified. That can't be affected. What this passage is showing us is that all things now are working toward this purpose in creation. All things. Everything. But Paul doesn't just stop there. 
with this high theological debate. Paul, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time, asked a series of rhetorical questions to his readers here and ultimately to us this morning that I think reveal what the providence of God means for us. As you live your life, what does it mean that you believe and trust in the providence of God in your life? What does it mean that you trust and believe that God's working everything that you face, all things, for, for your good and his ultimate purposes in the world, which is the glory of God and the salvation of sinners? What does it mean that you believe that? And how does that have any function? Because the last thing we want to do is be people, men and women, who sit here and we, we have all of this theology and it has no application to us. That's not the function. That's not the reason why we talk about the things in the Bible. What Paul is saying here is that to understand and embrace and love God's providence enables us to live in a certain way. And I want to look at that through the lens of these rhetorical questions. What does God, God's providence, and the belief in God's providence enable us to do? And I want to put it into three categories. One is to live confidently. Two is to believe radically. And three is to suffer victoriously. God's providence enables us to live confidently. This is where I want to start. In verse 31, it says, what shall we say to these things? I think it's 31. That's going to bother me. Let me just pull it up. Okay. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? I think really at the heartbeat of what Paul is bringing out when he asks this question is this is amazing. This is amazing. What can you say to the providence of God in the life of the believer? What can you say to the fact that everything in all of creation has us in mind, us as an end goal on the way towards the glory of God? What can you say to this? The providence of God enables you to live confidently, number one, as a worshiper. This question alone is really rooted in the main premise behind any type of preaching, any type of soul care you've ever received, if it's rooted in the gospel. My number one desire for our church is to be awakened and amazed at the beauty of Jesus and the gospel. Are you awake to that? Are you awake to that? Look at what God's done for us. Look at the murdered son. On the cross, it's wonderful. What shall we say to these things? What Paul is saying is that words cannot adequately describe who God is and what he's doing in the world. And therefore, Paul's wanting us to be so amazed and so in love and so wonderfully captivated by this wonderful, miracle-working, providential, sovereign God that we live our whole lives out of a posture of worship. And the end goal of the Christian life is the glory of God going public in the worship of His children who were bought by the blood of the Lamb. The end goal of the Christian life is that the glory of God would be seen and felt for what it truly is in the world by His believers, by His children who were bought by the blood of the Lamb, worshiping them wholeheartedly. Therefore, the number one application and implication for the providence of God in your life is a life of worship and adoration of God. It's wonderful. It's unbelievable. When we understand God's providence, we are enabled, one, to live confidently as worshipers. 
Because God is providential in your life and in the world over all things, you can confidently worship him regardless of the implications. Which leads me to my next point about this. Living confidently in this way, as if you were immortal. Ooh, that's kind of crazy to use that language. Well, this is what Paul says. If God is for us, who can be against us? What Paul is rhetorically saying, I think here, is that there is nothing that can effectively come against you as a Christian. Nothing. There is no external reality that is over and above God's plan for your life. And and does that mean that God wills suffering? Absolutely not. We're not saying that. We're saying in a mysterious way, the Christian can settle and rest in the tension of God is working everything we face for my good and glory. And nothing will happen in my life outside of his plan. Nothing will happen outside of it. God's not surprised by your situation in life. You need to believe that and know that. You're not catching God off guard whenever something happens. And maybe it's the result of your own failure. You're not catching him off guard. He's not changed. He doesn't have to pivot to plan B and hopefully that's going to make sense. God's not overwhelmed by what you are facing right now. But instead, God has demonstrated that he is for you and with you. You can live confidently as if you were immortal. As if you were immortal. Because one, you will not die in the ultimate sense. You will live eternally. Death is a pathway into glory with God. But now, here and now, we can live as if if nothing bad is going to happen to us in the ultimate sense. Because nothing can come against you that can rob you of what God is doing in your life. Nothing. What's the worst case that happens? You die and you're with him. Nothing can rob you of that. You are so secure in Christ because of who God is that you can live your life without hesitation. You can live your life not not out of a posture of anxiety where all of your decisions are governed by this inner unrest. The providence of God leads us to see that nothing can come against you that is victorious if God is who he says that he is. Nothing can. So when it comes to holy ambitions that you have in your heart, go for it. When it comes to evangelism and the fear that you have as you think about speaking of the name of Christ, go for it. When it comes to the hard conversations that you need to have with your friends about you know, how you've been hurt, when it comes to conflict at your job, the providence of God says nothing's going to touch you outside of his plan. Nothing's going to touch you. And even if one day you die, when we die one day, God has already secured an eternal plan in him that is just a doorway into resurrection and ultimate redemption. God's providence enables us to live confidently as worshipers as if we were immortal and with our eyes fixed on Christ. This is what I mean by that. Think about what it says here in verse 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I want you to think about what he's saying here. What type of confidence can we have as we seek to live confidently? Paul actually gives us a reference point for our lives in this passage. that demonstrates the providence of God over all things. He gives us a reference point for how we can seek to live confidently. 
in the providence of God over our lives through this rhetorical question. If God did not spare his own son, positively speaking, what he's saying is look to Christ. Look to Christ. God did not spare his son for us all. How can he, who has already done the ultimate work that we most needed in our lives, how can he not graciously give you everything? How can he not graciously work everything in your life for the advancement of his ultimate purposes in the, in the world? How could he not do that? When we hear that verse, I think that there's probably still a question that we immediately run to. And that question is this. What exactly does he mean when he says he gives us all things? What does that really mean? My flesh wants to say, that sounds great because like my car is about to break down. And like, we need to get that figured out. You know, it sounds great because my wife's begging me to get new windows to her house. And honestly, I don't want to drop 15 grand on it. Surely he's not talking about those things. Like that's, that's not what he's, at, he's got at his heart when he's referencing that God is going to graciously give us all things. Like a new car or a nice house or any desire that we have. That's not the function of the, of the providence of God. This is what I think he means. What I think he's trying to say with this question is this. That Jesus is proof that God will provide all that we need as we wait with patience through suffering for the glory of God that's going to be revealed and to be conformed to the image of his son. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the proof that that will happen in your life. So whenever you're at this place where you have a particular sin struggle, I've asked this question of myself often. I'm fighting through the sin and I keep, I keep falling back into it. Maybe I have a propensity towards anger. Or maybe you have a propensity to act out towards lust or addiction or substance. Well, you know, whatever it is. What, what scares me to death is to think I've got to watch my life till the day that I die. What if I live for another 60 years? I've got, I've got to be this like militant with my life for that long. I think the comfort of this passage is wanting to, is wanting to I think God's wanting to comfort you in, in that, in this way. He's going to give you everything you need to make it. He's going to give you everything that you need to be conformed to the image of his son. Everything. He's not going to withhold anything that's going to be helpful for you as you are conformed to his image. He's not going to withhold it. He's going to graciously give you everything. How do you know what Paul says? Look at Jesus. You don't have to, you don't have to like, ha believe a promise that's empty. It's been proven in Christ. Yeah. You want to know how you're going to make it to the end, O oh Christian, who believes Him and have been born again because of Jesus. You're not going to make it to the end because your faith is so strong and you're so great and you had the self-discipline never to look at that thing again or never to do that thing again. That's not the promise. The promise is that in Christ and through Christ, he will give you everything you need. Isn't that an amazing truth? We will be conformed to the image of his son. And Jesus is the proof that he's going to give us everything that we need as we wait for that day with patience through the suffering that faces us. We can live confidently as worshipers, as if we were immortal, looking our eyes at Christ. But also, we can believe radically. I'm going to spend just a couple moments on here. This is what this next question says. 
Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You can believe radically if the providence of God is true, which it is. Romans 8 says it is. It shows us that. You can believe radically that God has justified us. God has justified you. Who can bring a charge against you now? God justifies. For those who are in Christ, you can believe radically right now that nothing in our lives will ultimately affect the eternal purposes of God in your life. Nothing. Nothing will affect it. Nothing that you do will affect it. Nothing that you have done will affect it. What it's saying here is that God has justified you. God has made you and declared you righteous to be in his presence. God has made it possible for you to experience eternal life with him forever. It is God who justifies. Therefore, it is not defined by your work. And it's not defined about on the premise of what's going to happen in the world. For those who are in Christ, nothing we have done will be proven to be more effective than the work of Christ on our behalf. Nothing that we have done will prove to be more effective. Now, is that license to sin? Absolutely not. It's not. Because how could he who has been delivered from the power of sin walk in it? He can't. So that question is not even really relevant to this. What this shows us is that those who have truly believed and experienced the power of the gospel, this is the promise. Nothing we have done will prove to be more effective than the work of Christ. Nothing. Nothing that has happened in your past. Your family of origin doesn't speak a better word over you. Your, uh, your worst habits and your worst failures are not stronger than the power of the blood of Christ. I was talking to Ezra about this on the way to church this morning. I said, Ezzie, are there things in your life that you're just ashamed of? And she's like, yeah. A seven-year-old even gets that, right? She was quick to say, yeah, there's a lot of things I'm ashamed of. Whatever comes into your mind as you think about the shame that you carry, the things that you've done, the guilt that you carry, the fear that you have, those things will not prove to be more effective than the work of Christ on your behalf. You need to know that. Paul continues. He says, who is to condemn for those in Christ, nothing that, not that we have done to, to make it, I've already said nothing that we have done will, will prove God's work un, ineffective in our life. But even further, nothing that we will do will disqualify us from this work either. For those in Christ, nothing we do or will do will disqualify us. From the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus. We can know that even when we as Christians are unfaithful, He is faithful to forgive us. He's faithful. And, and repentance, when we come and we repent of our sin, repentance is not making a pathway for us to be with God for eternity. Repentance is a way that we say we believe that nothing we ever have done and nothing that we ever will do will change who we are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Repentance is saying we agree with that 
It's a way that we say that the power of sin truly has no power anymore. So the call is not that we can continue to live and at the end we're going to be proven faithful no matter what happens. It's that when we are unfaithful as Christians, which we will be, the providence of God says Christ is faithful and will work everything in your life for his glory and our good. And here is a function of how we can believe that and know it to be true. Paul wants you to see this. Is the next question he asks. He says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's how he answers it. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? How you know that you being in Christ is eternally secure and will not be changed. Just a little side note. Our language of eternal security in Christ does not change the significance of the imperatives of the New Testament. So what I mean by that is we can say that those who believe in Jesus are eternally secure in God while also saying with Paul in Corinthians when he says, make no mistakes, the sexual immoral, the drunkard, the adulterer will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those do not stand in contrast to one another. Instead, God's providence is actually worked out through his warning and commands of Scripture. It's actually worked out that way. It's in the providence of God that you would hear the imperative to be free from sin and you would be free from it. In a way that we can't fully understand and I am totally content to rest in the tension of is that you are eternally secure and you need to heed the warnings of the Scripture. Now, on this point, How do we know that there is no condemnation? How do we know that no charge can be brought against God's elect? This is how we know. Because Jesus is at the right hand and he's interceding for us. He's at the right hand and interceding for us. Evidence of our eternal security in Christ. Rest in the fact that Jesus himself is interceding for us right now. Think about the power of prayer in your life. Think about how powerful... I know that there's, there's been multiple times in my life where I've, I've woke up in the morning before the kids get up, spent time in the Word, and I've cried out to the Lord for help. This past week, I was angry at different things that were going on in my life. I was so angry. And when I'm angry, I, I tend towards prayerlessness, but by God's grace, that, wasn't, that didn't happen this week. And I went to God, and I took my anger to God. And you know what He did? He gave me a heart of gratitude. God moves in prayer. You know, and that's, that's what happened in my life. It happens not every time I pray, you know, but it happens some. And then especially, think about how blessed you, Christian, have been when someone's prayed for you. Think about how blessed you've been. Think about how encouraging it is to you when someone comes up to you and says, hey, how are you doing with X, Y, Z? I've been praying for you. It's like it lifts you. It's like it gives you a new found sense of just delight and happiness. Or maybe it doesn't. <clears throat> Or think about the times that God has actually answered the prayers of other people for you. A good example is my, uh, my cousin felt very strongly that God was calling me to be a pastor specifically. This was when I was in high school. And seven, eight years later down the road, uh, I, told, I told her just on a random day that the Lord had given me, you know, uh, a desire, a heart, and uh, it seemed to be confirming a calling on my life to be in church planted. She told me, she's like, I know, God told me a long time ago, I've been praying for it. That was extremely encouraging for me. God answered a prayer. 
God answered her prayer in my life. I felt the benefit of that. Now, I want you to imagine what the scripture says here when it says that Jesus is interceding for you. Think about that. The Son of God is at the right hand of God interceding for you. You want to know how you're eternally secure? It's the fact that the resurrected Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God reminding the Father about who you are. He's reminding the Father about who you are. He's looking at your life. He's seeing what's ahead. And he's praying to the Father interceding on behalf of you for all the things you need to wait with patience through suffering. Surely, God is providential over all things in our life. Last thing I'll end with today. The providence of God enables us to suffer victoriously. Romans 8, chapter 36, or verse 36. I think it's really interesting that Paul does this. This is really helpful for us, and I hope that I can demonstrate this well. In verse 36 in this chapter, Paul references the Old Testament. Paul references Scripture that says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What Paul's ultimately doing right here is he's demonstrating that all of this talk about the providence of God and all these wonderful realities doesn't negate the fact that you suffer. He's not wanting to change that. If anything, he's wanting to demonstrate that this is the very dynamic of what life is. We suffer. As it is written, we're being killed all the day long. What he's saying is that the scriptures actually testify to our experience. The scriptures actually say we are being killed all the day long. The scripture actually shows us that. Go read the book of Psalms. Suffering is inevitable. We will all suffer. We will all suffer. This is what Paul is getting at here in verse 36. The question that Paul is posing is as we look at our lives and how much we go through, he's, Paul's wanting you to, to look at the, the lives of God's people as well. Look at the history of God's people here and how they had suffered all throughout history. Think about the life of Joseph. Think about David, right? Think about Jesus. Think about the Israelites in exile. Suffering marks all of those things. The question is asked though by Paul, does this experience of suffering that is most true in our life, persecution, nakedness, famine, danger, sword, does that thwart God's plans for us? And Paul's emphatic answer is no. God's providence says no. It does not thwart God's plans. If anything, what Paul's wanting you to see is God is actually using even these things, even the worst scenario you face in your life, to accomplish his purposes in Christ. He's even using that. And look at verse 37, what it says. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The conclusion of verse 37 is that we are actually not just making it, but we're victorious in it. We're victorious in our suffering. We're victorious in our persecution that faces us. We're victorious in danger. We're victorious in sickness. We're victorious in whatever's happening in the back right now. <laughs> wow. 
this is like the, the, the crescendo of the sermon, you know. <laughs> and we got that happening in the background. We are victorious because it is through our suffering we get more of Christ. We're victorious because what God has in mind in, in your life as you suffer and you go through whatever's going on, you cry and you're sad and you're in despair, that you would get more of Christ in it. And that is victory. That's victory for us. That's why the scripture says we're more than a conqueror. The, th- think about a conqueror. Think about Alexander the Great. Think about David. Think about Saul in the Old Testament. Think about all of these. Think about Moses who walked through the Red Sea and watched the seas pummel the Egyptians behind them. They conquered in the moment. God conquered in the moment. But, you know, there's a sense of pride that they probably felt. In that same way, what, what the scripture is saying is that it is through suffering that you get to experience that. That sense of victory in all things. Why? Because it is through suffering that you get more of Jesus. You get more of him. What I mean by that, when I say more of Jesus, because that, that almost sounds platitudinal, which means it almost sounds like, oh, be happy. You know, but there's not really, it's empty. There's not really substance to it. But what I mean when I say that is that what your heart most desperately longs for and you feel in your life on, on an everyday basis is the brokenness of our creation with Almighty God. Christ reconciles that. And the more you suffer, God is using suffering to actually let you experience what you were made for. And it is presence, is being in the presence of the resurrected Jesus for eternity. So there's victory through suffering. Therefore, suffer victoriously. The promises of God's providential care in our lives allows us to face suffering in ways that others honestly just can't. They just can't. No one can suffer like this because no one has a hope like this outside of Christ. No one can. As we look to the cross of Christ, what we see is real and precious promises that God is with us. And even in the moments where life is raging and it feels totally out of our control. That, I feel like that's every single day. If, you, if, you, if you're a young parent here, you know that like getting your kids out the door on any given morning is like a win, a major win. So when I'm hearing life is raging and feeling out of control, that's where I feel just like things are just out of control right now. Like, I'm just going to go back to bed. There's so many mornings where I just wake up. I'm like, we're just not going to do this today. We're just going to just act like the day didn't start. Life rages when you're feeling as if it's out of control. What this is showing us is that God is in control and that he is actually working every moment for his purposes. And his purposes, as we've already seen, are justification, our glory in Christ. Those are his purposes. We can suffer victoriously. Through God's providence, we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to live confidently as worshipers with our eyes fixed upon Christ. To, to believe radically that, that the work of Christ is, is, is enough, effective for us and to suffer victoriously. When I lost my job, right before we got married, man, it was really hard. It's hard. I was sad. I remember crying. You know, I was 22 years old. I couldn't find, I couldn't find a job. It took me forever to find a job. It was a really hard time. I don't know how we made it. But God was faithful he was so faithful in our life. Honestly, that losing the job led us to buy another home that cost us $70,000. It's the best decision we've ever made. 
It's a little bitty old town home. I can say with confidence as I look back at that hard and really trying time in my life. I can say this with confidence. If I had not gone through that period of my life, I would not be where I'm at today. By any stretch of the imagination. The domino effect that that moment had in my life is impossible to communicate. I can't communicate. I definitely didn't believe that in the moment. If we did not go through that hard time, I can say this with almost 100% confidence, Solo would not exist. We wouldn't be standing here today. We definitely wouldn't be in Gainesville. It's all the, the, the amount of life-giving, transformational discipleship I've experienced through relationships with you guys and others in the city of Gainesville is just incalculable. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that hard time I was going that we went through. So much in my life would be different. Because God is God's providence, man. It's just it's in, it's so hard to communicate well, what He does in our life. This is my takeaway. God was working all things for my ultimate good and His ultimate glory in that situation, and He is doing the same in your life right now if you believe the gospel. We have a promise to prove it, and we have a son who rose from the grave to prove it. Here's what I found. If you've never believed in Christ, I hope that you see today, because, I mean, man, maybe you need to believe in Jesus. We have a wonderful hope. We have a wonderful hope in him. Turn to him. Believe in him. Look at the person of Christ today, right now. I invite you to trust him. Trust him with your future. Trust him with your life. Trust him with the the hardest decisions in your life. Trust him. The, the, The providence of God is written here for you who are weak in faith, for you who do not have faith, that you can bake your life on a solid foundation that is Jesus. You can bake your life upon it. And things are going to come your way, but he's going to give you everything you need. He's going to give you everything you need. Our sin has separated us from God, but it's through Christ. He took our punishment that we deserved, and he ultimately died. He laid his life down for us. And now we can experience reconciliation with God. And now when we experience that, the promises of Romans 8 become our promises. They become Sarah's and Josh's and Michael's and Susan's promises and Devin's promises. They become the promises that we cling to and we build our life upon and we wait with patience through suffering. Let me, let me pray for us here as we turn to the Lord's Supper today.